Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. We're going, we're going, uh, uh, we're going. Hey. I have a question for you. Um, I have an answer, hopefully. So, I think that Matt is lying about going to the doctor. No, I don't think he is lying. Here's what I think he's doing. I think he's like wants a break from me and the kids who can blame him. Mm-hmm. And so the most like instead of being like, I need a break. He is booking doctor's appointments at a rate that is alarming for a healthy human being, <laughs> like three a week. So I'll be like, where are you headed? And he's like, I've got another doctor's appointment is there another today. One this, I know last week that was, is there another one this week? Yeah, there's several. I mean... That's what I'm telling you. He went for a deep gum cleaning. I just want to know if he's really going to the doctor or if he's crying in the basement. Have you ever been to, I really like also when you go to like a, a funeral where the person's life is really celebrated. Like oh, we went to yes. a friend of mine's funeral and we all sang, take me out to the ball game at it. Yeah. That was like part of the service. That's and there I was want. just like lots of people telling really good stories. It feels very Irish, right? Like that's, I've mm-hmm. always wanted a party and it sucks, you know, you can't make it, but I, I want like food. I want drinks. I want music. I want, I want a Careful. roast. Careful. You're really selling me on your death here. Totally. What <laughs> I want actually is a roast of Cariopoma when I die. I a want it to be. Roast is hard. Roast is hard, but you can be playful. You can make fun of me. Oh my God. I went to the worst funeral. They where... usually are pretty bad. And so it's, a, you're, it's an uphill battle. It's a mixed bag. Um, a really good friend of mine um, who also was one of Brianna's boyfriends killed himself. Oh, right. And he had bipolar and he was not taking his medication. Right. And he, he died. But um, this was a few years ago. We went to this funeral and I had to borrow a car and drive a really scary road, the Sawmill River Parkway or something. Yeah, that shit's it's scary. Really it's scary. Dark. And I don't drive Is it often. in Connecticut? No, it's here. Right. But I had... So I, my anxiety was through the roof right. already because, like, I'm going to a funeral of a friend's. I'm driving yeah. in this car. I don't usually drive on the scariest, narrowest road. And everyone's a New Yorker, so they don't mind, like, honking and screaming at you while you're like, I'm just trying to drive. Yeah. So we get to the funeral, and then 
the guy's dad is just a real piece of work, just a real nasty person. Really? Uh Uh-huh. And he also is just a real selfish sort of person that the whole thing was really about him. And he went up and did a really, really long speech. And he said a bunch of really confusing things in the speech. Things like that our friend had always loved theatrics and the theater and something like, and this has been his best performance of all. He said something to a level where I'm not kidding. We were all looking at each other like, what? Did he do it? And we were all waiting almost for our friend to show up and be like, this has all been a joke. Because when you're friends with somebody that's mentally ill the way he was, it, right. it, it would not have been completely unheard of that he would do something that upsetting yeah. if off his meds as fake his death and have a weird funeral and then show up at it. But the way his father was talking was such that we were like, what in the world is going on? And then he was just saying, he, then he kind of started yelling at his son being like, I remember I took you to a baseball game. What? You didn't like that. That wasn't good. Like it was like really, that got really like caustic toward him at points. It was just like, we all had to be subjected to this man working through his own issues. Of course, his son had killed himself. I understand this was somebody I loved. I'm not, I'm not trying to be insensitive about what this man was going through, but it's like he subjected all of us to him working through it. Oh my God. And we had our own issues to work out. Wow. And then he was doing this really awful thing afterwards where he was going up to people and introducing himself and being like, how did you know my son? In this really aggressive way. And you'd be like, oh, you know, we were good friends um, in school. I'm so sorry for your loss or whatever. you. Yeah. And he'd go, tell me a story about him. Tell me a story about how you knew him. And he was going like up to people and almost? like, no, but like putting people on the spot who maybe weren't ready to talk about it and maybe didn't want to tell a story. And maybe it their was story just, wasn't for his father. It was making people very uncomfortable. Like, Oh, it was very uncomfortable. I think actually his one of his dear, dear friends oh, that was Jesus. very close to him, probably his best friend, ended up confronting the father at some point and saying, like, stop. Like, this isn't just about you, that we've lost this person and you need to stop. It was, but you were like, get me the fuck out of here the that entire is, time. I've never heard of a, quote, bad funeral. That sounds like a it bad... It was the worst funeral. Because you you go to a funeral, right, to either celebrate the person's life, I would like to think, or in an instance where it's maybe really upsetting because it's a suicide or something, a lot right. of times I think you're going for some sort of closure and to be with other people that love that person and, and feel and conflicted sit with that for and a be minute. confused, yeah. And it was just not letting anyone digest the very sad, very sudden events of what had happened. It right. was like, oh, so terrible. Oh, my God. This is a weird segue, but do you know how you want to be buried or your body? I've been thinking that thing where you, like, just get buried in the ground with nothing and, and are, like, turn into... The pod tree thing? 
I don't, I haven't looked into it, but I like the, you know, I think of like six feet under the show mm-hmm. and when he took his wife's body and, and just wrote, buried it. it. Don't oh, spoil it ooh, for me. Ooh, okay. Well, I ooh. was thinking donate to science. Oh, that's a good one. Because then like you're useful. Get useful. Um, my, my dad one told me, he said, do whatever's cheapest. And if you don't, I'll haunt you. <laughs> oh that's a good one carrie's dad <laughs> he's like don't it's don't waste money on that don't i think it's funny yeah i don't I, I probably would donate to science but there was a moment where i was like but do i want people doing nose jobs on me and like there was this feeling of like my body then changing or being like augmented that freaked me out and it got to the point where I was like, why am I being so particular for a thing that I don't use anymore? It's like being like, you can borrow my, sh- you can have this shirt. Don't do anything to it. Yeah. Except it's my body. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you can, you can have this body, but, there's also but don't things, touch it. There's also this thing where you can like donate your body to like, where they take corpses and depending on like the progressive of decomposition, they put it in certain circumstances Mm -hmm. so they're able to see like they're able to actually date time of death and decomposing bodies like if i were to just die and i was five days out or whatever they could put it in a place with like high humidity and there's scientists that go in and record the decomposition of your body so that if they see that in real life if they have a body in real life i don't think i want that sounds like a rough job that recording job yeah but also like all the stories we do in terms of like, we know it's been five days since the time of death because of X, Y, and Z. All of that was discovered because... No, no, I don't poo-poo the science. I, it's uh, poo-poo the job. Poo-poo. It's a hard... It's Somebody's got to do it. I, I also, just don't want to be the guy that does it. I also don't know if I want to be And I don't even want to be there if I'm dead. I don't even want to be... I don't know if I want to be like decomposing in a forest. But I don't know. Maybe that's like... I Peace don't know. sounds peaceful. But what if it's not, you know? What if uh, there's a what if bear? Blew it, right? What if I blew it? Anyway, who knows? So the story I'm going to tell you today. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? I'm not going to tell way, you. I'm not going to tell you. Truly. Darkly. Creamly. I'm Quinlan Positive. And I'm Carrie Epema. And you are leaving a review on Apple Podcasts right this moment. Right as we speak, you're typing it. You're saying, this is a great show. This is so great. Here's five stars. It's really, really great. And I love it. And I love it so much. And I totally love it. And I love the smell. And I love the touch. Join Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we don't have ads. We don't have so ads. So we have to so have relax, something. Folks. Okay? And okay. honestly, there's a musical inclination in this podcast. And if you're just tuning in, then you've yeah. just tuned out. And <laughs> it was good to meet you. And goodbye. This is who we are. Take it or leave it, baby. And also, we might change. Stick we around. We could change. We yeah. can change. We're we evolving. We'll humans. change for you. We're reverse decomposing. Because that's love. We're reverse decomposing. We're building something Mm -hmm. out of flesh, bone, bone, blood, and and stories. stories. Okay? Right? I don't think that's wrong, even if it's not right. right. This is a story that I... I'm going to do. I read an article in the New Yorker called A Loaded Gun by Patrick Radden Keefe. And the article is so good. I need not do much other research to understand fully how incredible to the story is. Done. Let's go. Fine. Let's go, Loaded Gun. Wikipedia, you were there too. <laughs> <laughs> you were watching me Wikipedia in this article. Was sure, it was sure, perverted. Sure, sure, sure. Okay. Amy Bishop grew up in... 
a Victorian home in Braintree. What a weird name for a town. Great. Love it. Um, her parents, Judy and Sam, were there. Her little brother was there, Seth. Sam was this guy that, um, I guess his parents were Greek, and he joined the Air Force and then met Judy at the New England School of Art, and they moved to Iowa City together. And Sam was like an artist by day, a janitor by night. And after having Amy, they're like, let's move back to Massachusetts. And he gets a job at Northeastern University, and they have their second baby, Seth. They're super involved in the community, and they have, like, a cute family. The kids are close. A friend of the family was talking about the kids and said they both loved music, loved science. She seemed to enjoy having someone younger to collaborate with. Amy's super smart. She plays the violin and does oh. science, and she's a STEM. smart little girl. Yeah. Give it STEM women. Um, And she agrees to this day that they had a great relationship, her and her brother. She was kind of a loner, though, I get the feeling. And he was kind of um, the opposite, maybe. Like, a little more... What's the opposite of a loner? Popular, I guess. People are A loner. Peepler. He was a peepler. She was a loner. In 1985, some thieves break into their home. Oh, no. Yes. And they steal Judy's wedding ring. And some other shit. And it gets everyone really shaken up. So Sam, the dad, is like, we're going to buy a gun. And he buys a shotgun and he keeps it in a bedroom closet, not loaded. There's whatever shells nearby on like a dresser, but not right. loaded. Flash forward to a year after this gun is purchased and it's 1986. Okay. Okay. 86. So I think Amy's math, 20 math, and math, Seth math, is 18. Math. 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 Math, math, math. It's December. Judy, the mom leaves early in the morning to go to these stables because she has a horse that she stables there that she's going to um, clean a stable or something. <laughs> I don't know. Is that what you do? <laughs> you just said stables over and times. over. <laughs> she's going to the stables. <laughs> you just said, she went to the stables. She stables a horse to clean the stable. Is that what you do with the stables? <laughs> Keeping it in. Thank know. you. <laughs> Please keep it in. It's so good. I I'm love editing that. it out. We don't know anything about horses in this family. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, she doesn't, I don't know the exact time any of this happens, but she says that she's gets home at around two. Um. We definitely know that she's home just after two because that's when she calls the police. Oh, no. And she says, you need to hurry. Amy shot Seth. <gasps> the station's really close to their house, so the cops get there really fast. And Judy, the mom, has blood on her clothes. No. And there's blood all over the kitchen. And is Seth alive? Seth is bleeding to death. And Amy is gone. Oh. Judy says that when she got home... She was in the kitchen. Seth had gone to get groceries and walked in. Amy came downstairs and was carrying a shotgun. And she said that she had a shell in the gun and she didn't know how to unload it. And Judy was like, don't point it at anybody. And Amy was swinging the weapon around to show her brother. This is what Judy says happened. And the gun fired. No. And after the gun fired, Amy ran. She's picked up at an auto body shop in town. And in the police report, it it says it confirms that Amy had this loaded gun, didn't know how to unload it, was upstairs in her room trying to figure out how to unload it and accidentally fired a shot. 
and it shattered um, a mirror in her room and there was like a hole in the wall. She heard Seth come home. So she comes downstairs and she's like, help me. And then the shotgun went off. They asked her, did you shoot your brother on purpose? And she said no. And this is in the police report, I guess. One thing that's a little weird is that Amy and her dad, Sam, both allude to there being some sort of argument that day, but it also had nothing to do with Seth. It was between them. At any rate, Sam wasn't at home when this happened. He was shopping. Amy's released really quickly. They're all like, go home to your parents, rest, we'll investigate this later, which seems really strange to me. But a medical examiner... Rules Seth's death an accident. He died. Pending police investigation, he dies. Yeah. I mean, it's no. a shotgun. Um, I know, but a couple weeks ago, I did stories where shotguns didn't kill people. Well, mostly they do, is the truth. I know the they truth. do. I know. Oh, um, fuck. I hate this already. So there's a state trooper in the DA's office and the police. They all conclude that Seth's death was the result of an accidental discharge of a firearm. People at Seth's uh, funeral say that Amy's just super out of it. She's, like, catatonic. And that she just felt horrible afterwards, obviously. She How could sleep you even... with her parents. She, she's 21, I think, at the time. She's sleeping oh with God. her parents every night. Oh, my God. One thing I read was that shortly after his death, she started to hear voices. That they continued off and on. And that they were sometimes scary, sometimes not. But Amy doesn't receive any counseling or psychiatric evaluation. Oh, my God. Or just any help. Wait. There. Also, they don't move. Oh, my God. So, like, you're going to go make yourself, like, a bowl of cereal in Where that kitchen. Where killed? Can you imagine? No. No. Ugh. Accidents are so scary. So scary. So. If it was an accident. Three or four we... years later. It's three years later. She gets married to this guy, Jim Anderson. He's a student at Northeastern. And in 1991, a couple years after they're married, she has her first daughter, Lily. A couple years after, Lily's two. And in 1993, Amy has this supervisor at Children's Hospital Neurobiology Lab. His name is Paul Rosenberg. She and him don't get along. She resigns her position she says that she does so because um, she can't meet the standards required for work. She's, like, really upset. She's kind of flipping out. People say she was felt like nervous breakdown style freaking out. God, grief follows. I mean, my God. So he one day, Rosenberg, gets a care package in the mail. It's sent anonymously. And he opens it really, really carefully because he's creeped out. And it's a pipe bomb. It's a couple pipe bombs. It doesn't go off. He's okay. But Amy and her husband become suspects. Yeah, of course. And they don't really cooperate with the investigation. I I, I don't know if that's because they were angry they were being they were suspects or what. What? Or, yeah. But it remains a mystery who sent it to this day. Whoa. Right. Amy has two more daughters after the fact. People say she's a great mom. Super loving, super attentive. If anything, she's a little high strung, a little specific about what, you know, the kids got to eat this and da da da, and here's nap time. But she's a good mom. She, 2001, she has a little boy and names him after her brother, Seth. Um, what's interesting, though, is you'll read in the article that a lot of 
people that were pretty close to her friends did not know about her brother and did not know her son was named for I don't him. know how you even like I mean, broach that conversation. Because also like pe- truth or dare pick pe- truth. Have you killed your brother? Oh, no, God. it doesn't and happen. And people are going to be like, I don't really know what to say if you unload that story. Uh, um, poor choice of words, Quinn. <laughs> oh, God. So Amy is, like I said, she's a good mom. She's a little, she's described as like brittle. She's, I think she's a kind of abrupt person, but she also, I kind of like the way they described her. She has like a dark sense of humor. Yeah. You know, she's yeah. smart. She's quick. She's, we would like she's her not for everyone, you know? Yeah. She was not a very popular teacher. She's not beloved. Right. right. A lot of her students are like not into it, leaving her class. Other students, she's sort of unceremoniously firing from her class. Oh. Yeah. It sounds like an Would intense not like to read those classroom atmosphere. Totally. After her brother died, she got kind of religious. And she also wrote a lot of fiction. And in her fiction, there would be accounts that were sort of similar to things you could say maybe happened in her life. But who's to say? There was a lot in her work about people sinning and then being forgiven. So she's a writer. She's a teacher. She's raising four kids. She's doing postdoctoral research. She's financially supporting her family. Mm -hmm. It's a lot. Yeah. I think she's a little stressed out. Yeah. Feels like she's also running away from her feelings, if I were to. All by that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Sasa Baby, he's a year old. And then he's got these three older sisters. It's 2002. And they go to breakfast. All the whole family does in an IHOP. And Amy's like, hey, can we get a booster seat? And they're like, actually, our last booster seat just got taken by a different family. Sorry, we don't have a booster seat. Amy feels like she was there first. And it was mistakenly given to this other family. So she finds the other family that got the booster seat. And she starts screaming at them curse words and also pulling like a Reese Witherspoon and being like do you know who I am (laughs) like you know she's like do you remember when Reese Witherspoon got pulled over by the police and was like drunk and was like do you know who I am anyway no um, I don't but god bless um she's definitely like do you know who I am she punches the mom in the head what? At this IHOP. With all, with with the mom's kids there, with her kids there. So she's arrested. Right. But That seems obvious. It's pretty wild she did that. But I guess she mm-hmm. is kind of known in her circle as somebody that does Might some, do that. She might do that. She might do some okay. erratic shit is, right. is the thought. Okay, let's go to the issue really at hand, which is eight years after this. 2010, she's a neurobiologist at the University of Alabama at Huntsville. She's teaching five courses there, and she's worked there for like seven years at this point. So I guess she got a job there like a year after IHOP. Mm-hmm. Because again, no one pressed charges. It's not... she. If she went to go get she a teaching job, yeah. there's nothing in her record. You wouldn't know about her brother. Right. You wouldn't know about the pipe bomb. You wouldn't know about the IHOP. Oof. You wouldn't know any of this. She looks great on paper. So she's been teaching, and she's been teaching at this University of Alabama in Huntsville for seven years now. Right. It's February 12th, and that day she would have been teaching a couple of classes, anatomy and neurosciences. And that afternoon, 
at three, there's a staff meeting for the bio department. The department chair shows up and hands everybody like their agenda for the meeting. Amy's just sitting there. She's usually kind of chatty Kathy, I think, but she's quiet today. One of the reasons she was maybe being quiet, people might have thought, is that she had recently been denied tenure. And everyone that was in that meeting with her would have had an opportunity to weigh in on that. So she's in a room of a lot of people that were like, she shouldn't get tenure. In fact, one of the people in that meeting said they worried about her mental health five minutes after meeting her. And again, wouldn't have known any of this past stuff. Was just like, this person strikes me as unstable. She had also appealed the decision to not give her tenure, hired a lawyer. It didn't go well. What that means is that she's going to lose this job she has. Right. So I think maybe her colleagues are like, oh, maybe Amy's being quiet because... It's an awkward situation. Yeah. Yeah. And like, why is she necessarily going to weigh in if she's one foot out the door, maybe? Right. She's friends with one of the women at the meeting. It's a biochemist named Deborah Moriarty. They, They became friends because they're both teaching and... When Amy found out she wasn't going to get tenure, she said to Deborah, my life is over. And Deborah was like, come on, you're like, you'll get another job, you know? Well, so the meeting's about to wrap up and Amy stands up, pulls out a gun and shoots the chairman of the department (gasps) in the head. His name is... No. Padilla is his name. Has a wife... Two daughters. No. He dies instantly. Fuck. So like the air is sucked out of the room. And before there's any reaction, Stephanie Monticciolo, the department assistant who's married and has two daughters as well, Amy turns on her and pulls the trigger. Then Amy turns the gun on 53-year-old biologist Adrielle Johnson. No. Adriel is this guy that like mentored youth. He was the principal investigator of the Louis Stokes Alliance for Minority Participation Program. And he dies. Everyone starts screaming, running away, dashing under the table. They cannot actually get away from her because where she is, she's by the door. Amy fatally shoots 50-year-old cancer survivor Maria Ragland Davis. (sighs) Deborah. Deborah hasn't been shot. Deborah's the friend. Yeah. Deborah turns and yells at Amy. Amy, don't do this. Think of my daughter. Think of my grandson. Like they know each other really well. And she looks at her friend and she pulls the trigger. <gasps> no. There's a click. The gun has jammed. Oh my God. Somehow, Deborah gets past Amy into the hallway and Amy starts to follow her out and she pushes Amy, like gets Amy out of the room and they shut the door, but she's trying to shoot her all the while, but the gun has jammed, but they get Amy out of the room and they barricade the door behind her. So they now have Amy out of the room. So they're in this room. People are dead. People have gunshot wounds and less than 60 seconds have passed. Oh my God. That's how fast it is. Oh, my God. Amy's now locked outside the room. She walks down the hall. She goes to the bathroom and rinses off the gun in the sink and throws it in the trash. She goes to another classroom and sees a kid and she's like, hey, can I borrow your phone? 
calls her husband. He picks up and she goes, I'm done. She walks out of the building through like a back entrance and she's apprehended. When they take her in the cop car, she just keeps saying, it didn't happen. There's no way. They're all still alive. Not totally clear what her brain is up to. After she gets arrested, the chief of police in Braintree, Massachusetts, where she grew up, calls the sheriff and is like, hey, I just heard about what happened. There's something you might want to know about her past and tells them about Seth. Nobody knows this. So Paul Frazier, who went on to become the police chief, is the guy calling. He knows a few things about that day that Seth died. The police report didn't doesn't reflect. One thing that happened that day that Seth died is that when Amy ran, she took the shotgun with her. And she ran to that body shop that she got picked up at. And she went inside with the gun and demanded to have keys to a car. A cop gets to her and is like, drop the gun. And she won't. And she seems confused, disoriented. And another cop actually has to come up behind her with a gun on her and be like, drop your weapon. So it's much more dramatic than just like Amy wandering off, which is like the picture you sort of get. Yeah. And then that's not really what happened. Let's also talk about what kind of gun it was, this shotgun that that killed Seth. It was a pump-action shotgun. And so my understanding is that, okay, the way that that would work is you'd load it and you do like a thrust and pull gesture and it shoots the bullet, but the shell stays in the gun. So if you wanted to do another shot, you'd have to do this whole motion to unload the shell and it would come out, and then you'd put a fresh round in. So in Do you order, understand? if she shot it up in her room, she would have to reload it and bring it downstairs. That's correct. Fucking what hell. What we know is that there were four rounds missing from the shells. Here's how we can account for them. Round one, you're right. That was the one that was fired in her room. Round two was the one that killed Seth. Round three was in her pocket. When they pick her up, round four was in the gun. She reloaded it. She reloaded it. That changes the story a little, don't you think? Yeah. Really, really trying to get in Um. her head. If you accidentally, or you're trying to unload a gun and you accidentally shoot someone. You don't reload it. Why in the world would you? You wouldn't. In reviewing crime scene photographs, there's pictures of Amy's room and you see a copy of the National Enquirer visible. And there's an article in that edition about Patrick Duffy's parents being murdered by a shotgun and then the assailant stole a getaway car. Some people postulate that maybe it, yeah. was her brain a mentally sick brain that saw this and said, that's what that's an instruction of what I must do. Wow. Anyway, Paul Frazier is really clear on why Amy was allowed to go free, which is the, now the new question. And he says that it was because the chief of police ordered her release. He was this guy, John Polio, and that Judy, the mom, yeah. was a big supporter of his and helped him a bunch and that this whole thing was a little bit um, political. Yeah. yeah. A lot of things support that they were not 
following protocol, like that Judy Bishop was allowed to enter the booking room. And she asked for him right away. And she asked for him by his first name, like, where's John? Meaning John Polio. She explained to him this was an accident. And he believed her. Judy says that Amy did this on accident. Fine. But the police report, like, omits the standoff with the two cops at the body shop and stuff. And the four... It doesn't really talk about... Yeah, exactly. Um, So now all this new light is being shed on Seth's death because of the Huntsville shooting. She killed three total people? Yeah. Three people. And... Because the assistant, she killed... She shot the assistant. The assistant survived? The assistant survives. Oh, my God. That's horrifying. And she calls her husband. I'm done. I'm done. There's an inquest about Seth's death Mm -hmm. after the Alabama shooting. And at the inquest, a sergeant says that he saw Judy hug Amy at the station and that she said she lost her son today. She didn't want to lose her daughter. Judy denies at the inquest. She said, I didn't have a friendship with John Polio. I didn't ask for him at the station. All these stories are coming in. The case is referred to the grand jury. And on June 16th, 2010, Amy Bishop is indicted for the first degree murder of her brother. Two days later, she slits her wrists in prison. A guard finds her, saves her. She told the author of this article, that wasn't the first time I tried to kill myself. I did it wrong the first time. I I tried to kill myself after Seth's death and I slit my wrist the wrong way. So this time I did it the right way. But, But then the author's talking to her parents later and he mentions that maybe she's tried to kill herself before. And it felt like the story got really jumbled for them where the dad, Sam, is like, she did cut herself. And the mom's like, no, 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 no. She was carving pumpkins and had an accident with a knife. That never happened. So there's definitely like you get the feeling when talking to the family that there's secrets that they don't want out. Yeah. Or not, they're just not being as transparent as you'd like them to be. The but story does not feel straight right. across the board. Totally. It does not feel like Amy, Sam, and Judy tell the, the same, same story. Yeah. With this suicide wow. attempt and maybe wow. even with what happened that day. Amy enters a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. She says, I don't have any memory of the murders in Alabama Huntsville. Okay. I, I am a paranoid schizophrenic. One thing you have to consider is that some of the people she shot voted against her tenure. Some people voted for her to have tenure. It was not like a clear story of who she shot, who she was mad at or something. And also Seth. Why? In the world. Paul Frazier says at the at this press conference that there was a fight between the two of them that day. But most of the evidence you look at makes you think the fight was not, there was no fight between her and Seth. It was between her and her dad, her and Sam. Anyway, Amy's in jail. She decides like, okay, I'm willing to plead guilty to capital murder in exchange for taking the death penalty off the table. And the prosecution accepts the deal. Okay. As for Seth's murder, Amy says, I want to be tried. This has been weighing on me forever. I want to set the record straight that I'm innocent and... That I would never have hurt Seth on purpose. Does she declare... What does she plead? Insanity again? She wants to get a trial. They're not giving her one. Right. Okay. 
she they probably won't uh i'm not really sure why though but she's in prison now for the shootings she's actually she's sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole and jim has custody of their four kids the art the author of this article patrick radden keefe goes to see someone who knows the bishop family but they want to remain anonymous but they say I'm going to tell you something I haven't said. On the day that Seth was shot, a friend of Judy's was going to go to Judy's house to have tea with her. But Judy called her to cancel and said, there's been a terrible fight here. And it's really bad. And my husband, Sam, has gone off in a huff. And then shortly after that, this friend heard about Seth. But it's like, how does that fit in with this fight with Sam? So then you wonder, did Amy... For some reason, think Seth was Sam. Like Seth came into the house and she was getting ready to kill her dad and killed her brother. I can't believe there was no counseling after. That is... No counseling. And she and tried to hurt herself. Patrick uh, Keefe, the author, went back through all of Amy's novels. Cause you remember yeah. she was a writer? And... In her first book, which is called The Martian Experiment, there's a protagonist playing with a friend from school and the friend's brother, Luke, and they get in a fight and the protagonist ends up throwing a rock up in the air and hoping it's going to scare her friend. But instead, it hits her friend's little brother on the head and kills him. Is that what happened? Did... Was it an accident? Was it an accident? Was she trying to hurt... Was she trying to scare her dad? Was she trying to hurt her dad? And was Seth, like, oh. the person that ended up getting killed? Either way, he's dead. And it's so sad. And it's so sad no one got her help because totally. there were so many warning signs that this person needed, needed help. help. Desperately. Ugh. The article sounds amazing. The article's incredible. You guys, read this article. So again, it's um, it's in The New Yorker, and it's called A Loaded Gun by Patrick Radden Keefe. And it's far more eloquently put than any of what I just said. And wow. Wow. Got some really interesting stuff in it that I barely just touched totally. the edge of. Oh. Yeah, that's the story of Amy Bishop. Wow. Um... I guess I'll go. Yeah, you should. Um, <laughs> I got my information from my Sun Coast, Wikipedia, CNN, Tallahassee.net or something, WFSU, FSU News, Jacksonville, ABC News. I'm doing this right with Andrew Coffey. Andrew Coffey is a junior at Florida State University. He had just transferred into the school and he's going to study civil engineering. His plan was to graduate and then enlist in the Navy after graduation. He apparently did not want to sit behind a desk. He wanted to see the world. He was an active guy. He's 20 years old, and he goes into FSU. He wanted to get involved in Greek life. So he was doing the fraternity pledging thing, and he became a pledge at Pi Kappa Phi. Just my own experience, because I think I went to Indiana University, as I've said, and Greek life was very big there. Um, And everything you see in the movies is true. No, um... (laughs) Believe it. Believe it all. Greek life, it's a great way to make a big school seem small, but my God, there are pitfalls. Here we go. On November 2nd, 2017, among the pledging activities was it was this thing called Big Brother Night. 
Big Brother Night is where, and do you know in fraternities and sororities, they give you a big brother or big sister, and it's kind of like your mentor into the fraternity or sorority? I was never in a sorority. No, no. Like, I picked a school based on it not having a Greek system. Yeah. That was like a... A must for me. I remember I wanted to, so at IU in your freshman year, the first semester you don't, you can go to lunches. So like I had friends, like older students who I knew through different programs who were in sororities and they would invite you over to like a lunch and their chef or cook would cook for food for you. And you'd see the um, sorority and they had this thing called cold dorms where basically cold dorms are where everyone sleeps and it's like 60 degrees because you sleep better in the cold and they call them cold dorms which just sounds so crazy to me (laughs) yeah that's kind of creepy i mean yeah it's dark and you like can't have a phone on it's like everybody has bunk beds but i mean here's the thing at iu you grow i don't even know how many kids were in our graduating class but it's a way to make it just a tinier version i was in the musical theater program as i've mentioned before and that was a very no tiny program, there. so I didn't need a sorority to make this experience feel intimate. However, I remember being like, ah, do I want to just, like, go through the thing of, like, you? it's like this weird speed dating thing where second semester you sign up and you go in a week early from your winter break and uh-huh. you do, like, a tour of all the sororities and then you pick your top three and they pick who they want. And if it matches, then you start... I, you seeing... already lost me. I didn't do sports for the same way. I don't like to feel not picked by totally. things. And I think where I was coming from, I almost signed up for it, but I was late and I was like, oh, can I still do it? And they were like, absolutely not. And I was like, oh, fuck you. I didn't even want to do this anyway. I just wanted to, like, have the experience. Like, if I was going to a college a big campus, I was like, why not just see what this is like to have this experience? I didn't anticipate actually going through with it, but I thought it might be a fun story. Here you are not having done it, and you're still telling the story. Telling the story. So you're fine. I'm fine. You ended up fine. And I did go to my fair share of fraternity parties in college. One time I called it a frat, which is short for fraternity, and this guy was like, would you call your country a cunt? You don't call a fraternity a frat. Not a great spokesperson. I really hate that person that said that to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Really the worst. I think he's an accountant now. Anywho, so there we're doing Big Brother Night, which is where when you start pledging, and again, sorority pledge is different than fraternity pledge. Fraternity pledge, a lot of it is like you start hanging around the fraternity. It's not a formal system. <laughs> Someone's like, that guy's cool. He can hold that his liquor. That makes perfect sense that the guys would be like, it sort of happens organically, which is just code for like, we're a little bit lazy and disorganized. And, and the women also are like, we... there's a chart. And, <laughs> and there's a dry erase board. <laughs> totally. And, there's, um... and I don't know if FSU is that way, but this seemed, I don't know how, that was at IU is what I can, who's calling? My mom's trying to FaceTime. Love her. Um, Anyway, so what happens is, is when you start in a fraternity or sorority, someone who's already existing in the, in the Hillel or in the Greek life, in the same house, they become kind of your mentor and they're known as big brothers or big sisters. And then you develop a family line based on every year. So this was big brother night where like they assigned their mentors and it was this pledge night where all the pledges met their big brother And the night involved lots of drinking. The fraternity, the frat, had a liquor ban. So they could only have beer or wine, which I think is obviously to curb binge drinking. But for this night specifically, the ban was lifted. 
They all were carted at the time. This is a quote dry campus. There was no drinking on campus, which is, by the way, I went to Indiana University, which is also a quote dry campus. This party, they planned it off campus because the liquor ban was going to be lifted. They took a ride share. So everybody, nobody had a drunk drive. The executive council organized it. They took everyone to this off campus house. This was also done to avoid the police and policies about alcohol. They apparently hired two strippers and the pledges had to do this tradition called family bottle where your big brother gave you a bottle of alcohol that you had to finish. Just like real big brothers. Just like real big brothers. And Andrew Coffee is given a bottle of wild turkey bourbon 101 proof. And he's supposed to finish it? He's supposed to finish it. This is so idiotic. Did you ever in college... There was this game called Edward Forty Hands. Where oh, I played that. <laughs> <laughs> I also in college played a game called Case Race, where we all, like, each you had a team and you had to finish a case and never finish the case first one. I was never good at these games. So when I'm I was not... a senior at Sarah Lawrence, Brianna was a freshman, my oh, sister, God. and we went to an Edward Forty Hands party, but I was worried about her, so I made her oh. do Edward Twenty Two Hands, like a good older sister does because really seemed like too much alcohol so she ends up you know for those that don't know though that's where they tape with duct tape malt 40 liquor bottles to your hands malt liquor 40 ounce bottles to your hands and you they're open and you have to finish it before you can remove it from your hands right so brianna of course like was like halfway through a 22 and was She goes to the bathroom at the party and then kicks open the door and starts yelling, Quinn, wipe me. (laughs) (laughs) I love her for that. not successful. But who lost? You actually did. So it was, she won. She won the day. She won and I lost. There's, there was some reports of it being taped to hands. There's also some reports of of malt liquor bottles, lots of drinking. Now, Andrew was never physically forced into drinking it, but this was for sure a hazing incident where, like, you're definitely coerced into and drinking over and this. over and over again. Right. Where they're like, come on, man, come on. Come well, on. also, they're pledges. They're not members yet. Mm-hmm. This is a part of their initiation process of right. this party that they do. So Andrew passes out outside. He's carried into the couch, laid down, and apparently he's snoring loudly while people keep drinking around him, partying, they're playing pool. Other people obviously started throwing up. His big brother, who was underage and got in the bottle, went home at that point. The next morning, November 3rd, they start to wake up. Another pledge, another young pledge, goes over and sees Andrew. Andrew is blue. <gasps> He's unresponsive. He's not breathing. There's not a pulse. <sighs> Instead of calling 911, this <gasps> young pledge starts texting other fraternity pledges, other fraternity members, going, what do I do? What do I do? Again, keep in mind, there's, like, a level of fear. There's a level of, like, don't be the tattletale, like, whatever it is. This kid was scared. Eleven minutes pass before whoa, they call 911. Whoa. whoa. You say they're scared, but I think calling 911 is a great thing to do if you feel scared. Unless you're black. Totally. But there's also, I mean, they're 18-year-olds. They're just drinking for the first time. I do know that, like, fear, I mean, 
I'm not saying it's an excuse. It's also reported that I, I don't think this would have helped him. This wouldn't have helped Andrew. I think he died earlier. Andrew dies. But About I think 11 w- minutes is would not have been the difference. No. But, but it I, might have but been I another world. What you I know? do think the 11 minute totally, absolutely. Always call 911 if we're not clear. But what I'm trying to demonstrate with the 11 minute time is how dangerous the dynamics and the politics are around fraternities and drinking and being cool and being one of the guys and not being a tattletale, not being a snitch. There's, this is going to paint a larger picture of like this coercive kind of energy around fraternities and specifically this moment. Guy, kid calls 911. He said, we had a party last night and my friend passed out on the couch in his side. His lips are purple. His body is extremely stiff and I can't wake him up. And honestly, I don't feel a pulse. They don't even know because they were driven there. They don't know the address. They don't know the nearest intersection that they're at. While he's on the phone, the dispatcher is walking him through chest compressions. Andrew dies. At the time of his death, his blood alcohol is 0.447. which doesn't mean anything to me. 0.08 is the legal limit. Oh, wow. He's over five times the limit. Wow. So it he, could have been he dies over, of drinking. Yes. It could have been over 0.558, which is seven times the legal limit. Like, he had finished a bottle. He's, he's 20 years old. He finished a bottle of 101-proof wild turkey bourbon. I mean, I, I can't wrap my head around it. It's so... His mother is quoted as saying, he died alone in a room full of people. Oh. CNN starts reporting, and they note that the members of the fraternity are not cooperative. There are nine members of the leadership council. Seven refuse to speak to law enforcement. They interviewed 22 pledges, but 19 pledges refuse to speak to the police. you guys think you are mobsters? The full members of the fraternity, 16 were interviewed, 22 refused to speak. So this is, and the people that did speak to law enforcement. Wait, 16 were interviewed, 22 refused to speak. Of, uh, not like 16 were interviewed, 20 refused to speak of like the full membership. Oh, okay. Okay. And this is added. It's <laughs> not like, like 22 of 16 members. Yeah, I know that doesn't mean. But, and so what was crazy is that the people that did speak were clearly performing a rehearsed script that was mm. self-serving, that was not transparent that was not clear and again they were not remembering the night in question yeah a lot of these people are underage here's what we'll say exactly obstruction conspiracy all this stuff is being floated around and so the grand jury decided based on that to indict nine members of pi kappa phi and a lot of what they're charged with is there was a meeting beforehand where they decided this where they talked through it Mm -hmm. his big brother was indicted because he purchased the bottle and he was underage, so he used a fake ID to purchase the bottle of alcohol that killed him. So they're arrested. They're charged with hazing, causing injury or death, which is a third-degree felony. Five of them plead guilty to two counts of misdemeanor hazing, so it's not a felony. Four of those people spend 60 days in jail. One serves just shy of a year but agrees to testify against the three guys who decide to go to trial. His big brother was sentenced to 30 days in jail. So the three that plead not guilty are part of the leadership, one of which wasn't even at the party, but was at the meeting beforehand to decide what this party was about or to decide, like agreed 
to have everybody drink a bottle of alcohol, a bottle of liquor. The defense attorney brought it to the court and the judge dismissed it initially because the hazing law at the time was just too vague. Obviously, this was appealed. And in 2017, it was pending. And the prosecutors say, Andrew Coffey is dead and this qualifies as a felony, period. Mm -hmm. December 2018, there was another trial for another death of a Florida A&M student, Robert Champion. And when kids were charged in that case, the defense claimed it was, quote, too vague. But the Florida Supreme Court said, we reject that argument that the law is clear and constitutional. So this is now going to affect the three boys for Andrew Coffey's case. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, a civil lawsuit against the nine members charged the Pi Kappa Phi organization, the chapter's advisor, the renters of the off-campus property. Everyone in the suit settled for the family for an undisclosed amount in 2018. After Andrew's death, FSU's president suspended all Greek life, banned alcohol, and all student events. Then, January 2018, the president allows sororities and fraternities to do philanthropic events and recruit new members. March 2018, the alcohol ban is lifted. It's hard to see because it's like nothing changes. Mm -hmm. But I also understand like you're not going to prevent kids from drinking. You're not going to prevent it. And what are you, you know, like it's going to happen. So Mm -hmm. what's... What's the actual solution to this problem? Mm-hmm. The FSU chapter of Pi Kappa Phi is permanently closed by the national office. That fraternity is completely shut down off of FSU's campus. The university drafted new policies that in order to have alcohol at your events, you have to, the organizers have to go to a risk management training. What's insane about this to me is I was looking up hazing deaths because there was one that recently popped up on my feed of a family that was that was talking about the loss of their son. And I was fascinated by it because it happens so fucking frequently. These hazing deaths, these like deaths where kids are coerced to fucking drink. And what's super scary is I've been at parties like that. You know what I mean? Like you just talked about being at a party like that. And Mm -hmm. this kid in a fraternity where like a lot of it is toxic masculinity, there's such coercion, there's such pressure to drink and be a part of the group. Andrew's parents joined a bunch of other parents of kids who have died from hazing deaths. And there's an organization called PUSH, which is Parents United Against United to Stop Hazing. This organization is trying to get anti-hazing crimes into federal law and making it a federal crime. Mm-hmm. The Coffey family attorneys went to Florida and to to correct that sort of vague hazing law and they wanted to make it tougher um and also to provide immunity for the first person who calls 911 mm. um which would help after that 11 minute delay it passed the Florida and House and Senate with unanimous votes in January 2020 the dismissal of the felony trial for those three defendants was overturned so the case can continue um, with additional counts against the defendants. So they they said that this is, they're allowed to stand trial, that this law is intact and they can be charged. They again appealed, but in August 2020, the Supreme Court declined to hear the case and they don't have to list a reason. So that case will be going to trial for the three boys who did not plead out. Mm -hmm. Dozens of hazing deaths. If you look on Wikipedia, there's at least one every year. Wow. There was this article where 
part of FSU was trying to do this risk management and to introduce the dangers of binge drinking and the dangers of, you know, hazing incidents Mm -hmm. and all that stuff. And what was really sad to me, the article talks about Andrew's parents sitting in the auditorium feet away from sleeping students who are sleeping through this orientation process (sighs) and how not much has changed how this mm-hmm. happened in 2017, and it's seen as like an isolated incident. But what's happening is happening all over at many schools across the country. And when kids go in, they think they're above it, and they're not participating. They're not hearing the dangers. It won't happen to me. This death keeps repeating itself mm-hmm. year after year after year. Oh, I'm not going to let my kids go to college. I just decided. Yeah, their I think fate. that's fair. I also think, I think kids go to college wanting to party or something, and they're not taught to do it healthfully and drink it. Like, it's just like not how party healthfully. That's probably an oxymoron. But like, I get what you mean. Nobody's doing it responsibly because they're, they're coming into college and they're just going fucking bananas crazy. And it's really fucking scary. And I mean, talk to your kids about sex. Talk to your kids about drinking. Because it shouldn't be that when they're 18 years old, those are two things that they have no uh, knowledge of. And they're taught by other idiots. Do you know what I mean? Like, they're taught by other dum-dums. Right. Let them be confident that they know what drinking too much can do and that they know what unhealthy sex practices can Let's do. Let's teach consent. Let's teach, teach consent. Teach consent when it comes to drinking, totally. I guess, too. I've been the victim of peer pressure. I've, as a 30 yeah. year old, like last week, you know what I mean? Like, like, yeah, we, yeah, we, you're right. Like, there's, oh, it's God. so hard to sit there and, and say be above it when, like, um, it's the mob when mentality. We're when we're beneath <laughs> it. It's like you, you see people doing things because everybody else is doing them. Imagine being 18 years old and, like, your reasoning muscle in your brain isn't even fully developed yet. Yeah. And and you want to fit in at a fraternity that, like, I just want answers on how to fix this. Totally. And I think, I do think, one, toxic masculinity is a fucking thing. Like, within these fraternities, within hazing incidents, with, like, not being weak or not being sensitive or, or toughing it out, this idea, like, it feels like... These hazing incidents are victims of toxic masculinity mm-hmm. to me. That's what mm-hmm. it feels like because I think you're not allowed to be sensitive. You're not allowed to be weak. The idea of having to drink a whole bottle of liquor to prove yourself, disgusting. Well, yeah, then I guess just public service announcement, the more you know, uh, if a friend asks you to drink a whole bottle of liquor, they're probably not your friend. They're probably not your fucking friend. That's the story of Andrew Coffey, one of what many amazing deaths. And my thoughts are with his family, but it's like we see it time and time again, the families of these victims where they feel helpless. They, I'm so glad that push exists where other families can like come together as a support group and also to help change. Yeah. I just think criminalizing it clearly isn't helping. I've been watching a lot of Darren Brown. Do you know Darren Brown? He's the mentalist. Well, I encourage you to watch. He's got some lots of weird stuff on YouTube shows he's done. But the reason I keep thinking of him is that uh, acronym or whatever, PUSH. Yeah. He has. So what Darren Brown will do is he'll say something like, I'm going to do an art heist. Right. Now watch me. And I'm going to like use all old people to commit it. 
And I'm going to teach them how to commit an art heist and then they're going to rob a famous art gallery and it's going to work. Watch. And he also does really crazy things where he can just like look at you and say sleep and you go to sleep. Like he can do mind control. Fun. He's wild. Um, And he had this special, maybe it was on Netflix or something, where he took people and ran experiments to kind of select the ones he wanted to work with. They obviously didn't know what his end game was. But um, the end game was to find people that could be um, easily prevailed on as far as influence and stuff goes. Like you could really, uh, you know, people that are kind of malleable. More susceptible, yeah. More susceptible to that kind of thing. He set up a series of events that were going to take place at a fundraiser. And I think the fundraiser might have been for Push. Because he also wanted the words Push to keep entering into your head. Because what he was trying to get people in this experiment to do was through a series of very carefully planned, think almost immersive theater where everyone around them was an actor, but they didn't know it. Right. And everyone around them had a role to play. And he says, I'm going to get this person to push someone off a building by the end of the night. (gasps) I'm going to get them to do that. This regular person. And he runs the experiment four times on four unsuspecting people. I won't tell you what happens, but um, you keep saying push and we keep talking about susceptibility to coercion. And anyway, it's really interesting special. I'd be really interested to actually have you watch it and hear your take on it for next time. Homework, Quinn. I know. Like you need more homework, right? Can you believe the baby has been asleep for this whole recording? Sleep begins Look more sleep, and he slept really well last night. You guys, I'm sleep training, and I don't need to tell all the moms out there. It's tough. It's a very special hell on earth. <laughs> but last night we had a lot of leaps and bounds in the right direction. Love to hear it. Love to feel it. The Love sleep, to see I it. mean. Mm-hmm. So, you know what? We gotta go. We gotta Pray go. Pray for me. You gotta feed him, and then we gotta go. Okay. Dear readers, join Patreon. Join Patreon. Leave us a review. Watch Darren Brown's The Push, if you want to. It's not for everyone. Uh, I would be curious what you guys think, though. Um, Somebody talk to me about it. And is there any other homework you want to give them? Um, Our dear readers, take care of yourself. Take care of you. Do something nice. Do something fun. For, take a bubble bath. Get That's a churro. what I want you guys Get to do. Get some churros. Take a bubble bath or take a really relaxing shower where you sit in there and let the water rush over you. Sit in the shower. Cannot recommend it enough. Do I need to get you a shower stool? Yes. If okay. that's a thing, What if I, I got you a shower bean bag? Oh, God. That sounds great. I know. That's. I a... don't think my shower is big enough, but let's try it. Fun, though. Fun ideas. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> was abrupt. Uh-huh.